0: The following episode is brought to you by the American Urological Association. The American Urological Association is accredited by the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education to provide continuing medical education for physicians. For more information on how to claim CME credit or to view faculty disclosures, please visit the AUA University at auanet.org university. Independent educational grant support for this episode was provided by MyoVant Sciences LTD and Pfizer, Inc.
1: Good evening. My name is Jay Raman, and I'm professor of urology at Penn State Health and chair of the AUA's Office of Education. It's my pleasure to welcome you to another one of our educational podcasts with this specific show titled Advances in Androgen Deprivation Therapy a guide for urologists and APPs, specifically focusing on comorbid conditions in the patient with advanced prostate cancer. Joining me today are Dr. Kristen Scarpato and Dr. Rana McKay. Uh, Dr. Scarpato is Associate Professor of Urology and a urological oncologist at the Vanderbilt University Medical Center. Uh, She's also the residency program director and Dr. McKay is uh, a urinary medical oncologist at the University of California, San Diego. She's co-lead of the Genitourinary Oncology Program and Associate Director of Translational Sciences. Uh, Rana, um, Kristen, first of all, thank you both so much for joining. Really, really appreciate it. Uh, thank you again.
0: Thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure.
2: Yeah, thank you. It's great to be here.
1: So, first of all, Rana, I, I gave you a Mackay and then I gave you a McKay. So, I, I which it's McKay, right?
2: It's,
0: it's It's actually Raina. Raina, just like
1: Dana. Raina. Well, there you go. I should have I probably don't always ask, don't assume is really the, the sort of safe thing to do. Okay. Sorry about that. So, we'll get started now. Um, so, Raina, maybe I'll start with you, uh, which is um, as we look at uh, androgen deprivation therapy. Um, maybe take us through what we should be thinking about with regards to bone health and uh, and then maybe what some of the agents that we should be incorporating as part of our treatment regimens?
0: Absolutely. So I think bone health is critically important for patients that are receiving androgen deprivation therapy. Um, there's a couple of factors to consider. It's um, you know, treatment related, bone loss that can happen while people are on ADT. Um, people can certainly be at risk of fragility fractures, um, which is really the key thing we wanna try to prevent. And then the other category is prevention of symptomatic skeletal-related events in people with hormone-resistant disease. So there's two indications for thinking about optimizing you know, bone treatments, bone-directed therapies, and it's treatment-related bone loss. And um, prevention of symptomatic skeletal related events. Um, there's a couple of different strategies that um, you know I think we employ in the clinic, and a lot of what we do in the clinic is really around education and prevention. And you know, for for uh, thinking about patients that are starting on ADT, I think it's educating around a um, you know healthy lifestyle that's going to protect the bones. You know, weight bearing exercises. Ensuring adequate calcium and vitamin D supplementation. Um, in addition, clinicians can utilize the FRAX score, um, which initially wasn't really developed for people that were starting on ADT. Was largely utilized in, you know, um, women who were, you know, uh, at risk of osteoporosis, kind of going through menopause. But it can still be informative in this context to assess fracture risk. And and really by doing that exercise, getting a baseline DEXA scan, you can. Assess somebody's risk and then continue to monitor them while they're on therapy. Um, there are uh, bisphosphate There are drugs that can be used for those patients that are at highest risk of fracture. And when I'm thinking about high risk of fracture, you know, I'm thinking about those individuals that have a 10 year risk of fracture anywhere that's greater than 20 uh, percent. You know, in the 10 to 20 percent range, and and those people that have a 10 year risk of a hip fracture that's um, greater than three to 5% really is where you're kind of thinking about potentially implementing osteoclast targeted therapies, whether they be Prolia, Reclast, Fosamax. There's a lot of different agents that are out there. Um, they're all um, equally effective, but just have different modes of administration and, and slightly different side effect profile. Great. So I
1: guess um, just real practical question is what – Sort of test do you get with regards to assessing bone mineral density, and and when do you get this? Do you get this prior to initiating any ADT? Uh, Maybe just take us through that for a moment.
0: So I like to get a baseline um, DEXA scan on all patients that are initiating ADT that are over the age of fifty. It doesn't have to immediately be before they start ADT. You know, it doesn't have to have to delay their treatment start. Um, but I usually get it in most, um, individuals, um, you know, around the time that they're starting on their ADT and really it's to assess, um, baseline, um, assess yeah. severity of bone loss that may already be present and then, um, monitor over time, you know, for those individuals that are undergoing short course ADT, um, you know, their likelihood of running into trouble is, you know, Low, well, you know, most, most of those individuals just doing six months of ADT, but um, in a lot of scenarios, in the high-risk setting, biochemically recurrent setting, and advanced setting, we're doing long-term ADT, and these people can be at risk.
1: So, so let's maybe talk about that latter group, the, those patients who are going to be on long-term ADT. So you talked roughly about when you get your baseline study, around the time that they start therapy. It doesn't necessarily have to be exactly before, but right around the time they start. And then maybe just give us your practice of when do you repeat the study and, and how often, yearly, every other year? Maybe take us through that.
0: Yeah. So for those patients that are on um, more chronic long-term ADT, if they start out with a normal DEXA scan, I usually don't repeat it for another two years. Um, If they are starting out with osteopenia, or even if they have Frank osteoporosis, then I'm repeating the scan on a yearly basis. And even in individuals who discontinue therapy, um, you know there are some people that stay hypogonadal for a protracted period of time, and you need to continue to monitor those individuals during that hypogonadal um, period and and look at sort of um, you know uh, you know preventing further degradation degradation and actually recovery.
1: So now I'm going to maybe pivot and ask you sort of about. Um, a sort of second set of sequelae that can occur with ADT. So we've talked about bone health. Um, Maybe give us a sense, Raina, about the impacts from a cardiovascular perspective. Maybe we'll start with that. And then also maybe an endocrine perspective for these patients.
0: Absolutely. So um, there has certainly been... So I will step back and say that in patients who have prostate cancer, cardiovascular disease remains the leading cause of mortality in these individuals, um, not necessarily prostate cancer. And we know that ADT can cause metabolic changes that can increase a patient's cardiovascular risk. It can cause you know, insulin resistance, um, You know, uh, raises uh, LDL levels, um, can cause sarcopenia, higher fat mass, increases the risk of thromboembolic events. I think there's certainly been mixed data regarding cardiovascular mortality as a side effect of ADT, the data are quite mixed. I think certainly the population that's at highest risk um, when they're starting ADT are those individuals who have an underlying history of cardiovascular disease. And particularly those who have had a recent event you know, within the preceding year of them starting ADT, that's a particularly vulnerable population. So, um, uh, you know, and I think, I think the other thing is kind of segueing with the lower insulin sensitivity that they're, you know, if people are not careful, you're not watching diet, they're not exercising, they can be at risk of, uh, diabetes.
1: So you were telling, are, are there any specific trials and maybe, maybe you would mentioned that, but are there any specific trials that have sort of looked at the cardiovascular safety and have sort of looked at maybe agonists versus antagonists and any data between them?
0: Yeah, very good question. So I think there is sort of this data that GNRH antagonists may have a slightly more favorable um, cardiovascular profile given the um, effect on FSH and LH. Um, The levels are lower with regards to GNRH antagonists that can potentially mitigate um, cardiovascular risk. And there was actually a very large study that was conducted. It was the first prospective international randomized trial called the PRONOUNCE trial, where um, the the primary endpoint was really designed around cardiovascular safety that compared GnRH antagonist dagorelix with GnRH agonist. And what was interesting about this study is that as part of the study conduct, all patients, independent of the arm that they were allocated to, were followed by a a cardiologist and really were kind of um, followed pretty aggressively with evidence-based kind of cardiovascular therapies around um, managing lipids and blood sugar and various other things. The trial was actually terminated prematurely um, and uh, and it was really because one, accrual, and two, there was just not a lot of events and there was no difference in the major adverse event profile between the two arms. And what I really take away from this study is it's more important to be proactive and preventative in the cardiovascular um, risk assessment and engagement with primary care and cardiology than, you know, picking one drug over another drug, you know? So I think just kind of being engaged, making sure the lipids are checked, you know, I think a lot of times you know, we think the primary care doctor is checking on the patient maybe hasn't seen their primary care doctor in so, so long because mm-hmm. they can't hear their primary care doctor. And, mm-hmm. you know, those things kind of fall by the wayside. So I think it's critically important to kind of be checking lipids, be checking hemoglobin A1C, fasting sugars, watching weight. Um, you know, there's there's really great uh, programs like the uh, YMCA Live Strong program um, for cancer patients. It's an absolutely phenomenal program. Um, to help patients. Um, and uh, I think I have a lot of my patients who are on ADT who go through that, um, you know, 12, 24-week program, and they they really love it.
1: Hmm. And, and, you know, probably on top of all of this, as you look at ADT, is, is, as you know, is that, you know, most of these patients with advanced prostate cancer are not going to just be on ADT monotherapy, right? So they're going to be on some type of Um, you know, novel hormonal therapy in conjunction with ADT. So I'm assuming that a lot of these effects that you're highlighting with cardiovascular and endocrine are probably just compounded when you're looking at patients on dual therapy. Is that right?
0: You're absolutely right, Jay. I mean, I think when we look at these additional agents, you know, abiraterone is now even used in the locally advanced setting in combination with radiation, the hormone sensitive setting, you know, and, um, when we're utilizing these agents in the hormone sensitive setting, I mean, patients can be on them for years at a time. Um, and, you know, the abiraterone in particular is given with concurrent steroids. So I do think that the cardiovascular risk is not inconsequential and, um, you know, abiraterone, you know, for example, has the risk of hypertension and risk of, you know, edema and the the mineralocorticoid excess. So I think it's really prudent for um, us to just be monitoring these patients closely with, um, you know, vital signs, you know, uh, lipids, blood sugars, hemoglobin, A1C, EKG monitoring. And there are actually, um, you know, certain criteria for patients that have, you know, a prior stroke or, um, peripheral vascular disease, cardiovascular disease, depending on the risk for actually making sure that they're on an aspirin or antiplatelet agent um, concurrently um, per, uh, you know, evidence-based guidelines. So that, that's really key to kind of engage cardiology and um, primary care. And I think the last thing we'll say, we don't talk too much about it, but smoking cessation, it's huge. You know, so if we've got patients that are on ADT, they're active smokers, I think it's critically important to, um, you know, counsel around uh, smoking cessation.
1: That's great. Kristen, maybe I'll I'll turn it over to you now and, and, you know, maybe we can pick your brain a little bit on what are the uh, sort of emotional cognitive impacts of of ADT and and what's some of the data that we have uh, on that impact?
2: Sure. Thank you. I think it's really important to have an awareness of these potential side effects associated with ADT. We know that ADT does a good job reducing the likelihood of cancer progression and cancer mortality, but there are important other long-term side effects like Raina just mentioned, but we don't often think about the emotional cognitive impact, or maybe I have not always thought about that. And now recently, I think we're hearing a lot more about the potential impact of ADT On cognitive function. And it's been somewhat controversial thus far with studies either showing conflicting results or having some um, methodological flaws. But in general, I would say that we have fairly strong evidence that hypogonadism is associated with issues related to memory and cognitive decline. And there's a potential link to Alzheimer's disease and Alzheimer's dementia. And there, it's postulated that these changes might be related to impaired neuron growth or axonal regeneration or abnormal protein folding. Um, and we know that ADT is associated with the risk of depression, which can be tied, I think, to some of this cognitive decline as well. Um, you know, an important point that you actually alluded to already is that ADT is rarely given in isolation. And we have to consider that some of these combination therapies may exacerbate some of the cognitive issues um, even further, like enzalutamide, apalutamide. And there is data from trials looking at the oncologic benefit of these combination therapies, but also show that there can be some significant cognitive memory, memory impairment for, for some of our patients. Some of the more interesting recent data, I think, relates to um, duration of ADT exposure and the risk of Alzheimer's and cognitive decline. There was a a JAMA paper um, published fairly recently looking at SEER data And this was a retrospective cohort study that identified men who had received ADT within two years of diagnosis. And these patients were evaluated to determine for a possible association between ADT exposure and these cognitive side effects. And they also evaluated the dose with the association of dementia. And so in this um, JAMA um, open trial, there were over 150,000 men who had newly diagnosed prostate cancer, were in their mid-60s at least or older, and could have had either localized or locally advanced prostate cancer and then needed to be followed for at least 10 years. And we can see the exposure to ADT group compared to the no exposure to ADT group there was a significant association with a diagnosis of Alzheimer's during follow-up with a hazard ratio of um, 1.14, and then a stronger association with the development of dementia. And it was a dose response. So looking at the duration did correlate with the more significant risk. And it wasn't, 10 years of ADT, it actually was looking at it in terms of number of doses. And so patients can be exposed to what I would consider a fairly small amount of ADT or a short duration, let's say, and still experience these these, um, side effects. And more recently, there was some exciting work published in the Journal of Urology out of UCSF, again, evaluating this potential association using the CAPTURE data, CAPTURE being a nationwide registry. And in this study, over 15,000 men with prostate cancer were enrolled across a variety of sites, academic centers, uh, community practices, VA hospitals. And they found a two-fold increased likelihood of new onset dementia among patients who received ADT. So in total here, um, 2.3% of patients were diagnosed with dementia during a follow-up of at least seven years. And again, we see that the cumulative ADT dose is significantly associated with dementia. And they did a really nice job in this study controlling for known and unknown factors that may potentially impact the relationship between ADT exposure and the development of dementia. So I really think it's highlighting another important potential side effect of ADT. While it does all these good things oncologically, we really have to be thorough in our counseling and consider the fact that these are older patients who may have some baseline cognitive decline already. Patients may be on multimodal therapy, or often they are, and this may be admixed with depression and other changes. And so we need an awareness that this um, can happen to patients on, on ADT. And I don't think that urologists need to necessarily know how to diagnose it, but need an awareness, need to talk to the patient, and certainly refer um, if there's any concern. And then uh, and pa- many patients come into our clinics with another family member who may bring, bring this cognitive decline up as um, something they've, they've noticed. So just really important for us to have, have an awareness of this association.
1: No, I I totally agree, and I, I think you did a great job in in summarizing some of these new new studies out there, and, and certainly uh, we'll we'll link uh, off the podcast some of these references, which uh, as you alluded to are both recent but also really high high quality references for our listeners. So, Kristen, I think the other thing that you know urologists and urologic practitioners, frankly in general, will see a lot of is. Not just maybe patients with advanced prostate cancer who are on long-term ADT, but but maybe those with um, localized disease, unfavorable, intermediate risk, high risk, very high risk, who maybe are being co-managed with radiation oncology and are getting long-term uh, ADT, six months to maybe twenty-four months ish, and or longer. And and I think what we probably see a lot in our practice is going to be some of the sexual function and quality of life side effects. And, and frankly, you know, I, I think these are probably issues that patients are going to assume that we are going to be able to, to manage or at least are versed in managing just given, you know, the subspecialty or the specialty of urology. So maybe talk to us a little bit about this other aspect, which is sort of, you know, sexual function and quality of life uh, in these patients on ADT.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Really an important topic and one that we should be comfortable in talking to our patients about and have an awareness of when to refer, how to refer, and certainly I think one of the most important things we can do if we're seeing these patients before treatment is um, pre-treatment patient counseling. Really, really critical. Um, We all have great outcomes, of course, but um, certainly Patients experience symptoms and qualities, quality of life issues related to sexual function. Um, you know, again, often patients are having surgery to remove their prostate and then go on to get ADT, or as you said, are getting ADT together with uh, brachytherapy, or I'm sorry, with uh, radiation therapy, and the side effects can be sort of additive here. And so we're, we're managing the side effects from um, a couple of, of different therapies here. I think when we're thinking about sexual side effects, there's really two parts to consider. There's sexual function, and that can be particularly impacted by treatment for localized disease, and then also ADT. And then there's sexual desire. And that can be um, impacted by ADT, and, and even so, I would say, by some, some localized therapy. But if we're starting with sexual function, which I think is perhaps easier to address than libido, uh, I think it's important when we talk to patients about ADT that loss of sexual function is not necessarily inevitable, but it's extremely common when, we're, when patients are on ADT, and often it can be profound. Um, So I would say the majority of men do experience this with ADT. Um, And so we need to consider baseline function in our patients, baseline sexual activity, and asking patients with standardized questionnaires so that we can assess for this is important. Um, Thinking about comorbid conditions, which can impact a patient's sexual function, also really important. Um, And then you know duration of ADT if if someone is temporarily going to be on that while receiving hormone therapy, duration can impact um, the results of uh, or the, the time course of a patient's um, sexual dysfunction as as well. So in addition to assessing their their function at the beginning of therapy and then throughout the course of therapy. We can intervene with um, oral PDE5 inhibitors, intraurethral suppositories, uh, vacuum erection devices, and then intercavernosal injections for patients who have had surgery previously or, or even radiation. Sometimes an IPP is, is indicated and um, also can be helpful in patients who have had ADT therapy. The way that our practice is set up, um, we have... of specialists who who manage um, all of these different aspects of sexual dysfunction associated with prostate cancer treatment. But um, many, many urologists are treating all aspects of of this care. And so I think having awareness and um, ability to know what what to do either personally or who to refer to is, is really important. And then there's the second part of this, which I think is kind of harder to manage. And that's um, loss of desire, loss of libido. Not uncommon to see this in men who are on ADT. And this can be multifactorial. Um, It can be related to the loss of testosterone itself and a feeling of being less masculine. It can be tied in with the depression that we talked about in the uh, prior discussion. Um, and it can, it can be linked also to changes in, in body habitus. And so we talked a little bit with, with Raina about endocrine changes. And, um, so as the body's shape changes and there's an increase in fat and a a loss of muscle mass, there can also be changes in the male breasts and you can see enlargement and tenderness and all of that can kind of contribute to loss of, of sexual self, um, you know, in addition to penile rehab, which doesn't necessarily get at this, there's some controversial data related to the role of initiating exercise programs for these patients to help improve sexual desire. Um, the jury may still be out on that, but my personal opinion is that it certainly can't hurt. And um, if there's a potential benefit, then, then why not go for it? Um, and so, you know, a, a lot to consider, but making sure that our patients are aware of these side effects, I think, helps combat them and, and may um, be beneficial at every sort of step of the way.
1: Sure. So, Raina, maybe I'll turn it back to you now. And I think you alluded to this a little bit uh a little earlier, which is um, sort of taking a look, not just, you know, in our, our narrow lens of a cancer patient who's on their therapy. In this case, we're talking about ADT, but sort of a little bit more of a holistic view of the patient and, and sort of the other factors that probably are going to be an interplay beyond that. Maybe just talk to us a little bit about that and, and if there's any recommendations from any of the large organizations um, on on what we should be recommending for these patients.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I think it's critically important to um, kind of look at the whole person um, as uh, these individuals are going through ADT, it, it is life al- altering. And I think their sense of self and self, sense of being does change. And I think looking at optimizing on all fronts um, is really key. I think focusing on optimizing diet, exercise and physical activity, sleep. And in some situations, I know patients may be very keen on, um, you know, nutraceuticals and supplementation and and what's a good way of going about that in a safe manner. I think when it comes to diet, I think, um, you know, there's one, of I think, a paucity of prospective kind of randomized trials like we would think about in, you know, the, the context of clinical care and therapeutics that we use in the clinic. Um, I think that the data that is out there from for prostate cancer and for other uh, mal- uh, malignancies, preclinical data, um, kind of cohort analyses are really focused on um, a Mediterranean style diet with um, increased consumption of antioxidants, um, limited red meat consumption, but good protein intake. I think protein is really key for these patients that tend to lose muscle mass. Um, good fruits and vegetables. Um, complex carbohydrates, I think are are, you know, uh, you know, good like beans, lentils, things like that, but kind of uh, uh, fine grains and sugars probably want to emit in the diet. And I wouldn't say that I would get behind any one specific diet. There's a lot of fad diets that out that are out there that have their uh, you know benefits and and risk, you know, keto, paleo, you name it, you know, no carb. I think it's, I think it's really about, uh, moderation and kind of, um, ensuring that, um, it's a diet that's, uh, rich in fruits and vegetables and protein and, and kind of limited kind of sugars, fried foods, things like that, fatty foods. I think when it comes to exercise, um, you know, the American Heart Association recommends 30 minutes of sustained cardiovascular activity where you're really getting your heart rate up above a hundred, um, about five days a week. And I think, in general, you know, I tell patients if they're able to get three hours, three to six hours of exercise in a week, um, would be um, you know great. And I think there are lots of different resources out there to help patients with exercise, um, from do it at home, do it at home uh, type of uh, programs. Like there's a program called the Silver Sneakers. Um, patients can log on and do exercises, kind of video-based exercises at home in 15-minute snippets, or there's something more advanced like, you know, the Live Strong program through the YMCA and other other sorts of things like that. I think trying to not be sedentary is key, walking around um, as physically active as possible. I think sleep is really particularly important. I think a lot of patients struggle with sleep when they're on ADT. They get hot flashes at night. They have nocturia. So I think sleep hygiene is, I think, Particularly important, um, you know, a lot of methods to, um, you know, one uh, just develop good habits. Uh, you know, uh, making sure that the room is dark. Uh, you know, melatonin production. You wake up in the middle of the night, turn on the light, boom, you shut off your melatonin production. So, limiting kind of um, the kind of the bedroom for for sleeping. You know, no TVs, no screen time before bed. That can kind of uh, uh, really impact people's ability to sleep. Um, exercise actually helps sleep as well um and so increased exercise can help uh sleep i think naps are okay during the day but napping beyond you know 30 minutes maximum an hour it then can actually negatively impact sleep at night and sleep hygiene um you know caffeine intake of course is important as well and kind of um you know uh uh you know food drink consumption kind of in the evening time people waking up in the middle of the night i think with regards to the hot flashes Um, you know, sleeping with a fan at the bedside can help a lot. I have some patients who will do a cooling mat on their bed. um, And of course, there's other medications to help with hot flashes, you know, uh, Effexor, Magase, Gabapentin. um, There's a lot of them out there. So I think really paying attention to, um, you know, this integrative integrative approach of diet, exercise, sleep, physical activity, I think is is really key. That's great. That's
1: a great great sort of summary of, of what we need to be thinking out about even beyond just sort of focusing right on the therapies that we're giving. So uh, in the last maybe four or five minutes, I'm going to ask each of you, maybe I'll start with you, Kristen. Uh, we You both have highlighted very nicely that the impacts of ADT are multifactorial and really do span uh, multiple different organ systems. Um, and so talk to us a little bit uh, about uh, multidisciplinary care and the interplay of sort of the variety of different um, specialists or experts that that sort of are probably involved. You look at the impact of long-term ADT on patients.
2: Yes, uh, I want to start by just making two points. One, one of the reasons I love prostate cancer is the fact that it is so multidisciplinary. And I get to work with people like Dr. McKay and um, the others who are so important to maximizing and improving patients' outcomes. And two, uh, I think that there's so much to consider that we have highlighted some of it tonight. And it can be a little overwhelming to feel like, oh my gosh, I need to know this about assessing cardiac risk and know this about bone health and this about that. And it's important to have an awareness about all of those things. But in multidisciplinary collaboration, you can phone a friend and help improve outcomes by sending patients to the experts for cardiac disease, for instance. And so um, multidisciplinary care for these patients is great. I would say recently I have formed a pretty close association with our pharmacists. And I think of religolix as a reason for that. Um, But there are so many agents now that are given that are hormonally active in this um, space and having a good relationship with your pharmacist to understand when to give them, what are some contraindications, um, and what are some potential side effects. I think that that's um, really important. And one other, other group I'll highlight it, for patients with really advanced disease is palliative care. And that's a topic that's um, kind of near and dear to my heart, but we're seeing much more of that in the education of urologists and that can really help improve symptoms for our patients with advanced prostate cancer um, and manage some of the challenging communication with more advanced disease and uh, end-of-life end of care.
1: Reina, any thoughts from your perspective?
0: Yeah, I mean, I echo that completely. I think the other thing I think to kind of think about is um, really actually also engaging the patients as well. I mean, this is a very, um, you know, uh, not to say unique patient population. Patients can live with this disease for a very, very long time, and they've picked up tricks along the way of things that kind of work and strategies to help them and, I'm constantly learning from my patients about, you know, a lot of different things that are out there and available within the local community. There's a lot of advocacy groups between the Prostate Cancer Foundation, Zero Movember. Um, so I think tapping into that and keeping the patients in, engaged along the way is really critical. And I think in addition to kind of like the three pillar kind of, uh, you know, disciplines of kind of urology, medical oncology, and, and radiation oncology, I think. Um, You know, I I love the integration of pharmacy, but, you know, others as well, like, you know, for those patients that have refractory bone disease um, or osteoporosis, you know, engaging endocrinology for those patients that have, uh, they're found to be BRCA1 mutated, like, you know, that's germline engaging genetics. So I think it's, it's really is a multidisciplinary team. And I think even in the context of people who have advanced disease, I'm constantly leaning on. Our urology team, you know, whether they're obstructed, they need a TERP. Their lymph nodes grew; they need to be stented. Like it's just an, you know, it's a con. At every step of the gate, at, at of the disease, there's opportunities for uh, multidisciplinary collaboration and kind of discussion around, uh, you know, the best ways to optimize care for these individuals.
1: Great. Now- both of you very well, very well stated. Well, I, I really want to thank uh, both of you, both uh, Kristen and Raina, thank you so much uh, for your time. Obviously your thoughtfulness, your expertise, it, it's really greatly appreciated uh, from all of us.
0: Thank you for having us. This was excellent. Um,
1: thank you. For our audience, uh, thank you again for joining us. For more information, uh, please visit us at auanet.org slash university. And I, both, I hope you both have a, a wonderful evening.